You're listening to the best of the Bradcast. Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyan. We're off today, but we've put together some of our favorite interviews for you. A best of the Bradcast. On today's show, Brad talks with internationally recognized expert on voting systems and election technology, Dr. David Jefferson of Verified Voting, about election system security and the madness of blockchain internet voting. And after that, while Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has now resigned, earlier this year, Brad spoke with Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities about Zinke's monumental screw-up. So sit back and enjoy this best of the Bradcast. A new poll finds that a strong majority of Americans have concerns that the nation's voting systems might be vulnerable to hackers. Might be? That part of the survey's finding is roughly unchanged, however, from concerns over election security just before the 2016 presidential election. But there is a twist this year, as AP notes. Two years ago, it was Republicans who were more concerned about the integrity of the election. This year, it's Democrats. Which, of course, underscores the point that I've been trying to make for so many years here on the Bradcast and at Bradblog.com that concerns about the security and ability to oversee election results by the public are not a partisan issue. But it also underscores what I've similarly argued over the years, that it won't be until a Republican really gets screwed by our corporate-owned, non-overseeable voting and tabulation systems that there will be any real change to the system. For example, do you think that if Republicans felt that a foreign country like Russia or any other might have manipulated our voting systems and our election results in 2016 to install Hillary Clinton as president, that there might have actually been some real changes to our electoral system? I do. But that's not the world that we live in right now. The survey released by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy and the Associated Press finds nearly 8 in 10 Americans say they are at least somewhat concerned about potential hacking. That is 80% of Americans. 80% of the electorate worries that our voting and tabulation systems may be vulnerable to hacking. And while there has been... A lot of focus on the fear of foreign intrusion into our non-verified computer-tallied election results. Computer security and voting systems experts will tell you that the vulnerability from insiders, such as election officials and voting system vendors and contractors, is at least as high, if not higher. Well, I guess I should take some comfort from the fact that now 80% of Americans at least get part of what we have been yelling and screaming and warning about here for about 15 years, being called a conspiracy theorist at times for even uh, raising the issue, and yes, often by many Democrats. 
So 80% of Americans now get it, at least in part, now that we uh, seem nowhere closer to actually doing what needs to be done about this problem. At the same time, there is an industry of all new profiteers, as I see them, hoping to use such worries to make things, yes, still worse, while hoping that nobody notices, I guess. So far, very few seem to be. As reported appropriately enough at CNN's Money recently, West Virginians serving overseas will be the first in the country to cast federal election ballots using a smartphone app this year, a move, CNN Money reports, designed to make voting in November's election easier for troops living abroad. But election integrity and computer security experts expressed alarm at the prospect of voting by phone, with one going so far as to call it a horrific idea. The state's decision to pioneer mobile voting comes even as the U.S. grapples with Russian interference in its election, CNN reports. Still, West Virginia Secretary of State Mac Warner and Votes, that's spelled V-O-A-T-Z, a Boston company that developed the app, insists that it is all secure. Ballots are anonymized, the company says, and recorded on a public digital ledger called blockchain the technology most associated with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Votes is one of several companies exploring mobile balloting and recording votes on the blockchain, though until West Virginia's experiment with it in an election this year, the technology has been limited to trial runs and private elections like uh, balloting for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. But I guess if it's good enough for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, it must be good enough for use in American democracy for the most important election of any of our lifetimes. West Virginia Secretary of State Werner's office said four audits of various components of the tool, including its cloud and blockchain infrastructure, revealed no problems. So I guess nothing to worry about. Joe Lorenzo Hall, the chief technologist at the Center for democracy and technology and a longtime voting system expert told CNN in an email, quote, vote mobile voting is a horrific idea. It's Internet voting on people's horribly secured devices over our horrible networks to servers that are very difficult to secure without a physical paper record of the vote. Marion Schneider, president of the election integrity watchdog group Verified Voting, was still more blunt Asked if she thought mobile voting is a good idea, she said, quote, the short answer is no. Here for a slightly longer answer is our longtime friend, Dr. David Jefferson. He has worked for years at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, where he remains a visiting, if retired, computer scientist and an internationally recognized expert on voting systems and election technology. He's been a pioneer in research at the intersection of computing, the Internet, and elections for 20 years and has been an advisor to five successive secretaries of state of California on technology-related issues, specifically on voting technology. He spent many years warning about the dangers of Internet voting, now including the newest trend, blockchain voting, which for some reason many young entrepreneurs and advocates, I might call some of them profiteers, as I did, these uh, folks who cite the answer to all of our Internet voting worries 
as blockchain. Dr. Jefferson is a longtime member of the boards of directors of the California Voter Foundation and of VerifiedVoting.org, both nonprofit, nonpartisan organizations devoted to promoting open, secure election technology. Dr. Jefferson, it is always a pleasure to speak uh, with someone who's been on this beat even longer than me, my friend. So welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Thanks, Brad. I'm glad to be here. I want to talk about your specific concerns detailed in a short paper that you published recently uh, at Verified Voting titled The Myth of Secure Blockchain Voting. But let's focus on West Virginia's use of this technology for a second. Uh, Internet voting proponents have tried this over and over again. I know that years ago you worked on a Pentagon proposal for uh, Internet voting during uh, George W. Bush, if I'm recalling correctly, that you helped stop back then, stop that proposal because it was not secure at the time. Uh, and in subsequent attempts, uh, the conclusion of experts has always been that the Internet, as it is currently built, is simply not secure for Internet voting. Uh, maybe years down the road it would be, but not now. Well, David, we are some years down the road. Is is that still true today as you see it? Uh, yes, nothing has changed for the better regarding uh, the prospects for secure Internet voting. The Internet, if anything, is a more dangerous place than it was when we... Uh, wrote that report about the Pentagon Internet mm -hmm. voting system that was proposed in, like, 2003. Mm -hmm. uh, the situation is much worse now, and it uh, it's much less defensible to even consider it. Mm. it do, do you have uh, specific concerns about this votes app that is being used in West Virginia, or are they the same general concerns that you've had uh, for so many years when it comes to Internet voting, whether it uses so-called blockchain technology or not? Yes, yeah, so it's basically the same concerns we've always had. The, uh, so let me explain how the Votes app works and mm -hmm. why, it, why um, the blockchain uh, back end of it doesn't do anything more to secure an election than any of the other technologies do. Mm -hmm. So the, the way it works is a, a voter uh, goes online on his smartphone, say, and the fact that it's a smartphone as opposed to a laptop computer or a desktop computer doesn't make any significant difference at all. But anyway, you go, you, uh, you use the Votes app on your smartphone. Mm -hmm. It downloads a blank ballot to your phone after you authenticate yourself. Mm -hmm. And we can talk about how you identify yourself as a, as a voter in West Virginia um, at, at some later point. Mm -hmm. But after you identify yourself, you download a blank ballot. You make your choices on the, on the ballot on the screen of your phone. Mm -hmm. And at the end, you send it back. You click the... Um, cast my vote button and mm -hmm. it sends your ballot back and uh, when the ballot gets back to a server it's then put on a blockchain um, the blockchain is uh, is just a ballot container, a little bit like a database it's, it's different from a classical database but uh, but for our purposes of this conversation it's just mm -hmm. a container for all of the ballots and then those ballots after after they're all collected and uh, at the end of the election day they are counted um, so the, the blockchain does not do anything. It doesn't even play a role un, uh, until the very last stage of balloting, after you've authenticated yourself, after you've made your ballot choices, after you've transmitted them back. Mm -hmm. Only then does the blockchain um, play any role. And it, it's the, basically the role it plays storage medium 
for it. It's a, it's, um, it, you you yeah. broke up there a little bit. You said it's a storage medium, and let me just take the chance, the opportunity sure. to jump in here. So, just to make sure I understand, because we we uh, you know I've heard this a lot. I'm, I know you have probably heard it a lot on on Twitter and everywhere else. People saying, "Oh, let's use blockchain for voting. That will solve all the problems." When we're talking about blockchain in this uh, in this case, please help me understand if I got this right. Essentially. Uh, votes are stored somewhere. Right now, they're stored uh, in in all of these other uh, you know non-internet voting cases. They're stored on a on a database server somewhere, whether it's at the Secretary of State's office or the county election office or uh, you know whatever private contractor that they have. Uh, contracted to uh, you know to to store all of these votes, but with blockchain, it's sort of a distributed database on a whole bunch of systems, which in theory would make it more difficult to go in after an election and corrupt that specific database without it suddenly becoming you know not matching all of the other distributed copies of this database. Is that yeah, does that so make let, sense? Let me try to explain it. So okay. Um, Yes, a blockchain is a distributed structure, so it means it's spread over a number of computers, mm -hmm. and uh, the computers may be um, widely geographically distributed in the United States. Mm -hmm. uh, that much is true. Uh, of course, you can do the same thing with a non-blockchain database. You can make a, uh, you know, have redundant databases mm -hmm. stored in several places in the United States. So that alone does not distinguish it from the classic uh, database um, implementation mm -hmm. um, compared to a blockchain. But the, the, the main concern is that all of the most serious threats to Internet voting occur before the ballot even ever gets back to uh, either the database or mm -hmm. the blockchain. Mm -hmm. In other words, the actual security threats to Internet voting are not involved with the back end at all, whether, whether it's a blockchain or a database. The real threats that blockchains do nothing about are one, voter authentication. How do you determine that the person who is casting the ballot is actually who he says he is and mm -hmm. is an actual registered voter in the jurisdiction that he's trying to vote in? Mm -hmm. um, the blockchain does nothing about that. Mm -hmm. um, what if there is malware on the phone or the computer that the person is voting from? Malware that is exposing the person's vote to some third party mm -hmm. um, or is modifying the vote or is uh, just throwing the vote away without telling the voter that, so making him think he's voted but he hasn't voted, mm. um, that malware uh, is not affected by and cannot be detected by the blockchain or the back end at all. The blockchain does nothing about that. The vote has to be transmitted mm -hmm. um, from, the, from the voter's device to the server on the other end. That vote may be blocked or thrown away or otherwise uh, disturbed by a denial-of-service attack, for example, on the server. Um, a blockchain server is no more invulnerable to a denial-of-service attack than any other back-end service. And that would mean, just to, just to clarify, a denial-of-service attack in this case, if it's Election Day and people are using this app to cast their vote and they can't get it through because of a denial-of-service attack, then their vote will never get through, whether it's accur accur accurately recorded or not, correct? So it won't be accurately recorded because it won't even get through. Right. That's right. Right. So, um, and a blockchain is, is no more or less vulnerable to a, that kind of denial-of-service attack than mm -hmm. an ordinary uh, back-end mm -hmm. database is. If your ballot gets through all of those hazards, 
undamaged and without being um, exposed to some third party, then the, the ballot is stored in the blockchain, and then it's relatively secure from that point on. But that's not where the main hazard has ever been. We've always been concerned about the ballot actually getting safely to the server, you know, without being disturbed along the way. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's still the concern. The blockchain actually does nothing to um, prevent most of the attacks that we're, that we're worried about. Mm-hmm. So it's really kind of a, the blockchain is, and I'm going to use a disparaging word here, it's, it's kind of a fad when it comes to uh, to voting technology. Mm-hmm. The term blockchain, of course, comes from a related technology and that you mentioned earlier from Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. It's part of the Bitcoin cryptocurrency and other cryptocurrencies. Mm-hmm. But the blockchain that's used in voting systems doesn't resemble much the one used in Bitcoin, and there's no great necessity for it in a voting system as there is in a cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrencies are do not very much resemble voting systems. And, and it's a mystery to me why uh, so many, uh, I guess, naive voting system entrepreneurs mm-hmm. have latched on to blockchains as a suitable technology for voting. I, I can give you an example sure. of the why blockchains for voting don't make the same kind of sense that they do for cryptocurrencies. Right. In cryptocurrencies, what one of the central concerns is, um, are people trying to use the same coin to buy two different things? Are you trying to use the same Bitcoin mm-hmm. to purchase two different things? And that's called double spending. Mm-hmm. And it, it resembles double voting uh, a little bit. It's like trying to, to vote for uh, two different candidates using your same single vote. Mm-hmm. But it, when I say it's like that, it, it only superficially resembles it. And double voting is not, in fact, very much like double spending. And um, with double voting, you don't even need to prevent it. You can allow voters to vote as many times as they want in, a, in an election. All you have to do is make sure you only count one vote from each voter. The last time so, they vote. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the, la- the last time. And that, that's, that's a really easy thing to do, whereas it's very difficult in a cryptocurrency because there's no uh, end date for cryptocurrency. Cryptocurrency spending goes on forever, but there's a single end hour when the election is over, and at that point you count the ballots, and all you have to do is just make sure you don't count more than one ballot per voter, and so you've solved the double voting problem. So the cryptocurrencies are not like elections at all, and there's, there's no real need to adopt cryptocurrency technology as a back-end for Internet voting, even if Internet voting were otherwise safe, which it isn't. And, and that was one of the points that I wanted to make, because uh, I, I do want to ask you about you know solutions here in, in a quick moment. Um, but I use the word advisedly because it's not altogether clear that everyone even agrees on what the actual problem is that many people are trying to solve here. Uh, David, you you cite um, you went through that list of of concerns that you have with uh, internet voting and this particular app that is being used right now in a live election in West Virginia yeah. in our midterm yeah. elections. Uh, you went through you know malware, denial of service, authenticating the voter, etc. There's another uh, point that you made in your paper on this at Verified Voting, which is that. 
none of this is ultimately auditable. In other words, it is not overseeable by the public after an election, even if everything before it was secure. Is that correct? Yes. Now, the claims, claims of auditability are sometimes made, um, but, they, but they're not usually explicated, and they certainly don't mean what we mean by auditability. Mm-hmm. Um, what we mean by auditability is you want a contemporaneous, unforgeable, hard-coded record of the voter's intent at the moment that he voted. Mm-hmm. And then you would like to be able to compare the vote counts mm-hmm. that you get that are produced by software. You would like to be able to compare those counts to those original hard copy read paper mm-hmm. uh, records of the voter's intent. Well, you can't do that with any kind of Internet voting system because there is no hard copy paper record of the voter's intent. Um, and so uh, there's nothing to audit from. There's no foundation for auditing. There is a claim made for um, Internet voting systems in general and blockchain voting systems in particular that uh, a voter may be able to look up his own ballot and find it on the blockchain because the blockchain content is supposed to be made public. Mm-hmm. Um, and a voter might find his own ballot on there and verify that it's there and verify that it is correct. But this is a very weak form of, of verification. It's not comparable at all to the kind of auditability I talked about earlier. Yeah. And, and it's not comparable for a few reasons. Um, and first of all, it, it would not detect um, phony ballots that are stuffing the ballot box because there's no voter who would look at them. Ah, to check, and, uh, yeah. And if you did discover that your ballot wasn't there or you discovered that it was recorded incorrectly, um, there's nothing you could do about it. You could report it, but you can't prove Mm. that your ballot was recorded incorrectly. You can't prove that your ballot is missing. Mm -hmm. And uh, you better not be able to prove it, because if you could, that would violate vote privacy. It would mean you could prove to some third party how you voted. And, of course, that's a fundamental uh, no-no for for election systems. This, that would lead to being able to buy and sell your vote after an election, for example. Right. And uh, and just to underscore your point, let's say a, a, you know, a, a voter was uh, unhappy that uh, Donald Trump ended up winning in 2016. Well, they could go online and say, look, I voted for Hillary Clinton and I, my vote wasn't. Ca-. I mean, it would be to, to right. be able to prove anything after the election is over is is essentially meaningless and so when it comes to auditability uh david and you know we're talking not about you know one single voter being able to prove whether that's a good idea or not that the system recorded them accurately we're talking about the public being able to look at all of these votes and know that all of these votes were recorded accurately as per voter intent and that there are no phony ones in there as well Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and that's yeah. what auditability gives you, and uh, and there just isn't any possibility of auditability in any online voting system, and blockchains uh, don't change that fact. And I think uh, I know that uh, you and I have uh, quibbled over the years about uh, you know what auditability really would require. I've uh, argued that it requires a hand marked paper ballot that we can know was actually. 
uh, reflecting the voter intent. Folks uh, at, at Verified Voting have said, well, as long as we have a paper record, whether it's handmarked or not, that that would be sufficient. So we can quibble about that, but none of that is available uh, with uh, any of the Internet voting solutions that I've uh, come across. And so as a longtime computer uh, scientist expert David Jefferson, who's worked with many other computer science security and, and voting machine experts on this, uh, you are hardly a Luddite. But what is the solution uh, as you and your colleagues now see it some 20 years after you have uh, after you have been on this beat? Well, so there, uh, there's voting in the precinct, which should be on paper ballots, and and frankly, I prefer hand-marked paper ballots too. By mm-hmm. the way, so I I, mm-hmm. I endorse your idea that it, it, the if you if you're going to vote in person at the precinct, it, the best system is to is to hand-mark a paper ballot, which then gets um, scanned and counted electronically, but is subject to audit uh, to auditing mm-hmm. after the election, so that those the machine counts can be mm-hmm. compared to at least a random sample of the uh, hand-marked paper ballots. Mm-hmm. That's if you are voting at the precinct. If you are remote, meaning you're traveling or you're overseas or you're in the military mm-hmm. or you are uh, confined and, and can't go to a precinct to vote, then the best solution is mail-in paper ballots, not any kind of online voting mm-hmm. system. And those are also hand-marked, I should note. And uh, before I let you those go here, be those would be hand-marked. Yeah, uh, before I let you go, because I'm, I'm very concerned, and I see a lot of, uh, you know, Democrats, as I said at the top here, are seem to be the ones who are most worried about uh, our election security at this point. That seems to change depending on whoever happens to be in office at any given time. But I'm, I'm quite concerned because I see a lot of uh, Democrats out there pushing for essentially what are touchscreen ballot marking devices that will print out instead of a handmarked ballot. It will print out either a barcoded ballot or a, uh, a, a, a human readable ballot summary, but it's printed by the computer. So it's very difficult to authenticate after an election that it actually reflects the will of the voters. I know a lot of jurisdictions are going to be going to those, including uh, here in Los Angeles, the largest voting jurisdiction in the country is set to do this. Do you have concerns about these computer-marked, computer-printed, barcoded paper ballots that uh, many now, uh, including Democrats, seem to be calling for? Well, speaking for myself alone, I prefer the hand-marked paper ballots for a number of reasons. Um, the critical thing that you need to know, that one needs to know, is that the voter has actually certain that the ballot um, uh, represents his choices or her choices at mm-hmm. the time of voting. If the, if the ballot is printed by a ballot marking device, you then have to trust that the voter is actually going to re-examine that ballot and, re, and uh, reconfirm every single vote and non-vote on that ballot, mm-hmm. uh, however it's encoded. And uh, frankly, there's uh, considerable evidence that, that a lot of voters don't do that or at all or don't do it uh, with the same attention that it requires. Mm-hmm. So I prefer the hand-marked, hand-marked paper ballots uh, as well. Um, the other concern is this, that, a, that um, ballot-marking devices, um, they cost, you know, $1,000 a piece and only only uh, three or four voters per precinct can be voting mm-hmm. simultaneously when, when you only have three or four ballot-marking devices. Yep. 
Um, and with hand-marked paper ballots, you know, the, uh, you can get 20 voters voting in parallel if you have, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 20 cheap cardboard privacy booths around right. and, and 20 pencils. Right. And then, uh, so there's no, so, you know, there, there are far fewer lines build up with pencils and, on paper instead of ballot-marking devices. And the cost is so radically reduced with paper and pencil um, I dramatically, I strongly prefer that, except for voters with disabilities who need some uh, uh, some aid in mm-hmm. producing a marked ballot. An assistive device, sure. And uh, again, David Jefferson is no Luddite, but he is calling for paper and uh, at least pens when it comes to uh, hand-marking paper ballots uh, as the most secure technology that we currently have. Uh, and I think, uh, David, you may have uh, lowballed it there by saying those machines cost about a thousand apiece. I think they cost a lot more than that. But uh, but I take your point. I'm going to uh, point folks over to your important paper, The Myth of Secure Blockchain Voting. Uh, and David, I just want to thank you for your years of service uh, and and you know being willing to join us uh, here on the broadcast or uh, you know give us quotes for Bradblog.com in this long years long fight against internet voting and the threat that it poses. Thank, thank you for all you continue to do, my friend. Okay, thank you very much. You can find uh, David's paper, The Myth of Secure Blockchain Voting, at VerifiedVoting.org. Thanks again, Dr. David Jefferson. Coming up next, Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities to talk about your public lands. I'm producer Desi Doyen, and this is the best of the broadcast. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it. If you enjoy the show and or get something from it, please give back a bit, if you can, by visiting us at bradblog.com donate. Your support helps Desi and me continue to bring you real, independent, progressive news five days a week over your public airwaves. We simply can't do it without your help, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today to make a one-time donation or, even better, automated monthly support. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you can rest easy knowing that we'll be here every day making sense of it all, or at least trying to. That's bradblog.com donate, and thanks. listening to the best of the broadcast. Well, uh, many of Donald Trump's most corrupt cabinet members have now been forced out of their jobs after months and months of the administration attempting to protect them. The most recent exit, of course, was the wildly corrupt administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, who was and is under more than a dozen official federal investigations at this point. Similarly corrupt, at least it seems to me, but receiving much less attention for reasons I'm not altogether clear about is Trump's Interior Department Secretary, Ryan Zinke. But new information and a new story and a frankly massive foul up by the 
Department of Interior seems like it should help bring more scrutiny to the role that Zinke appears to be playing for commercial industry rather than for the public as the head of Interior. As you'll recall, in April of this year, President Donald Trump signed an executive order instructing Interior Department Secretary Ryan Zinke to review 27 national monuments established over 21 years, arguing that his predecessors had overstepped their authority in placing these large sites off limits to commercial development. Since then, as we have reported here on the broadcast and, of course, in our Green News report, in an unprecedented move for any president, Trump has significantly reduced the size of two of Utah's largest national monuments. That would be Bears Ears and Grand Staircase Escalante and has not ruled out altering, limiting, closing down still more public lands, allowing them to be used by commercial drilling, mining and ranching interests. But in their quest to shrink national monuments, Washington Post's Juliet Alperin was the first to report recently, senior Interior Department officials dismissed evidence that these public sites boosted tourism and spurred important archaeological discoveries, according to documents and depart, uh, the, that the department released last month, but then retracted and redacted a day later. The thousands of pages of email correspondence before they were retracted and redacted for public release chart how Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke and his aides tailored their survey of protected sites to emphasize the value of logging, ranching, and energy development that would be unlocked if they were not designated as national monuments. The new documents reveal that as Zinke conducted his four-month review, interior officials rejected material that would justify keeping protections in place and sought out evidence that could buttress the case for unraveling those protections. Many of those points, the points underscoring the need to keep public lands protected, were subsequently redacted for release under Freedom of Information Act requests, but only after the initial unredacted portions were made available accidentally to journalists. As the Salt Lake Tribune's Brian Maffley reports, the unredacted documents from Interior are very revealing, as are the redactions of specific portions of those documents. Maffley explains that Southern Utah's Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument has helped shield archaeological sites from vandalism, bolstered tourism, and spurred scientific discovery during the two decades since its designation, all without displacing cattle operations that have long used these public lands. That's what the Bureau of Land Management wrote in a report released in July. The next day, however, the agency released redacted documents and that downplayed those benefits and in doing so painted a picture that the monument might not be necessary to protect the resources within its nearly two million acre boundaries. Maffley quotes Aaron Weiss of the Center for Western Priorities, noting that, quote, you have the secretary being worried if you get rid of the National Monument protections in Grand Staircase Escalante, you will be leaving sacred Native American sites unprotected. And there is no way to replace those protections with the existing patchwork of laws. 
Weiss notes they were really clear about that, and then they tried to hide that from the American people in the document dump. Critics, of course, contend that the redactions were made because the material undermined Interior's rationale for shrinking monuments and offer proof that the outcome of Zinke's monument review was preordained with an eye toward mineral rest- uh, mineral extraction on land struck from the Grand Staircase and Bears Ears National Monuments. Acting on Zinke's recommendations last year, Donald Trump reduced the Grand Staircase by about half and Bears Ears by some 85 percent sparking a host of lawsuits from tribal, environmental, and scientific groups. Here to explain all of this, and uh, specifically, pardon the pun, the monumental screw-up by Ryan Zinke's Interior Department, um, what they were trying to hide and what this may mean for those lawsuits moving forward, not to mention Trump's other threatened closures and reductions of national monuments, is Aaron Weiss. He is the media director, blogger, and podcaster for the Center for Western Priorities, a nonpartisan conservation and advocacy organization promoting responsible policies and practices and working to ensure accountability at all levels to protect public land, water, and communities in the American West. By the way, before joining CWP, Aaron spent 14 years as a journalist and broadcast news producer, escaping that nightmare apparently just in time. (laughs) And he now also hosts hosts, uh, CWP's Go West Young podcast, focused on public lands and the outdoors. Aaron West, welcome to the broadcast, sir. Brad, thank you very much for having me. It is my pleasure to be here. Uh, Before we talk about some of the specifics in these documents that the Interior Department subsequently at least tried to redact. I know that you guys do a lot of FOIA requests at the Center for Western uh, Priorities, uh, and you watch these document dumps closely. What exactly happened here in, uh, as I called it, this uh, monumental screw-up by Interior? The short version is that someone just forgot to hit the right button at the end here. Uh, you, You put out FOIA responses using Adobe Acrobat and stuff that's supposed to get redacted. You use the redaction tool inside Acrobat. And once you're done, you hit the finally redact button. And they forgot to do that here. So what they ended up posting was the full documents, not just unredacted, but you could see both the stuff they were intending to redact and all of the comments they left along the way about why they were redacting them. So it it almost would have been even better, you know, for them if they just posted the whole thing without the attempted redactions. But you actually got to see inside uh, the the redaction process. So it it was a a monumental, pardon the pun, screw <laughs> yep. up. Yeah, it, it sure was. The, um, the key parts that were redacted uh, from these particular documents we now know uh, regards Grand Staircase Escalante, which was designated a national monument by uh, Bill Clinton back in 1996 and detailed, among other things, Native American artifacts that were discovered at Grand Staircase. Uh, since then, they talk about hundreds of cultural sites being inventoried. That was uh, among the material that was redacted. What possible reason would they have for redacting that information? So the reason they gave, what what showed up in the final redacted document once they took it down and reposted it, they called that section 
uh, deliberative process. So uh, under the Freedom of Information Act, mm -hmm. you're allowed to redact certain things, private information, phone numbers, email addresses, medical information, mm -hmm. obviously. That's all proper. But then you also have this very broad exception. It's called the B-5 deliberative process exemption. And it's supposed to be so that officials can discuss policy options uh, candidly without mm -hmm. worrying, worrying about their internal deliberations going out to the public. Right. But oftentimes we see that B5 redaction being used as what's called the because I want to redaction. <laughs> right. And that's exactly what happened here is because they wanted to redact stuff that just didn't look good for them. They called that stuff deliberative, even though m many of these sections were not discussing policy options. They were just basic facts. And that's what you shouldn't be able to delete and call deliberative. Uh, you, instead, they just crossed out this whole section. Yeah, you, you shouldn't be able to. But of course, we wouldn't have even known about that had they uh, released the documents redacted in the first place. We would have presumed that the redactions was that deliberative stuff you're uh, you're, you're talking about. Uh, but in fact, uh, you know, as I say, it notes hundreds of cultural sites have been inventoried uh, and yet only 7% of the total area of Grand Staircase Escalante has yet to be surveyed. Are these uh, are these unsurveyed sites the ones that will no longer be protected with the uh, Trump Zinke shutdown of about half the monument? Well, yeah, so it's about half the monument. So, you know, huge sections that have not yet been surveyed by archaeologists and paleontologists. And, and that's one of the, the ironies here is that Grand Staircase is very rich in paleontological resources. It's relatively rich in those cultural artifacts in the cultural landscape. But mm -hmm. compared to Bears Ears, Bears Ears is a treasure trove of archaeological and cultural artifacts. And we know that inside Bears Ears, there are tens of thousands of archaeological sites that are in the area that President Obama protected. And again, that, that whole inventory was still in process. You know, mm. Bears Ears was only on the books for, for about a year before President Trump attempted to, to rescind that and shrink it by an even bigger amount. So when you, you extrapolate out from what we know that he was being warned at Grand Staircase, we know he must have been getting similar warnings about Bears Ears, and it's maybe an order of magnitude bigger in terms of the, the risk to the Native American uh, archaeological sites there inside, inside Bears Ears. Because we don't know, because this was uh, just a small portion of uh, FOIA requests that they had been releasing, correct? The, the, they only screwed up on uh, this one portion concerning Grand Staircase Escalante uh, as far as not redacting what they had meant to redact, correct? Exactly. They're under a court order to release these documents about the National Monuments Review. And under the court order, they have to release a new batch of documents every month. And they have been mm -hmm. doing this for several months now and will continue to do it for the foreseeable future. So if you look at what got mistakenly unredacted in just this one document and think about the tens of thousands of other pages already released and yet to be released, mm -hmm. it does raise huge questions about the way they're abusing that B5 deliberative exemption. 
Is there any chance, uh, Aaron Weiss, that these uh, th- this failure to redact, at least for a day, uh, not to be too conspiratorial here, but is there any chance that these were intentionally not redacted? In, or, in, in other words, someone inside of Interior trying to get the, the message out about this uh, information? We talked about that and considered it. I personally think it's unlikely because there are only a few... Uh, you know, a very small handful of people who have that final say in hitting the redact button and posting. So within the FOIA office, within Interior, they know exactly what went wrong and who screwed it up. And a mistake like this is obviously a very serious offense. I don't know what's going to happen to the, the person or people who screwed it up. Uh, I'd imagine it could be a fireable offense. So... If you were someone unless who was it, right, unless it was rightfully Zinke alarmed, himself. unless it, yeah, <laughs> unless it was Zinke himself, then right. uh, then it's just not. fine. He, he gets so, to stay. But, yeah, right. So here's the thing: if you wanted to blow the whistle on this, you could have sent these unredacted documents without fingerprints on them to uh, to a House committee. You could have sent them to a reporter and actually kept your your fingerprints off it. So mm-hmm. the fact that that didn't happen, I think, mm. means this was just a genuine screw up. Speaking to a few more of the details that we discover here, one of the reasons that many uh, well Republican lawmakers, certainly in Utah, uh, Western uh, ranchers uh, have complained about these federal monument uh, designations of public lands is that it limits the ability uh, for ranchers to use that land for cattle. But we learn again in the redacted portions of these documents uh, that apparently uh, quite the opposite is actually true, at least in Grand Staircase. Yeah, that, that's very true in Grand Staircase. And we've known that. I mean, Grand Staircase has been on the books for 20 years and the data around grazing, it's measured in AUMs, annual unit months. Mm-hmm. And the number of AUMs for grazing in Grand Staircase has not changed uh, over the 20 years since Grand Staircase was protected. It, and that's across it, you know, all BLM land. The amount of units available any given year go up a little, they go down a little because they are, of course, responding to conditions on the mm-hmm. ground and drought and the condition of the land and everything. But you look over the, the span of those 20 years, there's been effectively no change in grazing at Grand Staircase. Well, and that sort of guts uh, one of the very big arguments that uh, a lot of the the public, the the folks who oppose these uh, designations, uh, have made over the years. Um, but the redactions also included details on the amount of money that is generated through tourism for commercial business, local economies, and so forth uh, near these monuments. Can you detail some of the benefits uh, to those uh, rural economies from these uh, from these public lands that apparently uh, Interior Department doesn't want the public to know about? Absolutely. Because Grand Staircase has been there for 20 years, you've had a recreation economy grow up and develop around that national monument. So you have towns where the economies truly are transforming into recreation-based economies. And keep in mind, Grand Staircase is in the area around Utah's Mighty Five National Parks, Mm -hmm. Uh, Zion, Arches, so and those national parks, of course, are being loved to death. They are overcrowded uh, throughout much of the year. And so you do have this spillover effect because Grand Staircase is equally as spectacular, but not mm-hmm. nearly as crowded. 
So you have this recreation economy in the area that has grown up, and by getting rid of that, the, the monument protections, you put that recreation economy at risk. We've already seen now an application for a copper mine to reopen in what used to be Grand Staircase Escalante. And then, you, of course, you also have the risk to the research. Secretary Zinke has on his desk the skull of a Lythronax dinosaur that was recovered inside Grand Staircase Escalante, right around the areas that they're trying to pull out of the monument. So the hypocrisy there for the secretary, he, even, he tweeted out a picture of this dinosaur skull. Mm. It says right on there, was discovered inside Grand Staircase. That kind of research only happens because of the monument protections. That research happens and those artifacts, uh, paleontological or uh, the Native American, those are all lost if we turn all of this to uh, commercial use for drilling and mining, etc., which is what, uh, we, again, one of those redacted statements in, in these documents seem to suggest that without this designation, the uh, other available federal laws will not be sufficient to protect uh, the, these, uh, you know, these precious things like the skull that uh, Zinke displays on his desk. Now, uh, not redacted, Aaron Weiss, from these documents was information on uh, mineral deposits in these monuments, uh, tar sands, coal, etc. Looking at these documents and the subsequent attempted redactions here. What does this tell us? It seems like it tells a pretty clear story about why the Trump administration is doing what they are doing here with uh, with these attempted uh, reductions. No, it does. We'd always suspected that the outcome was preordained. But this really makes that makes it crystal clear that the fix was in from the beginning. And mm -hmm. we haven't talked about marine monuments on here, but there are some email exchanges about fishing in the marine national monuments that are even more explicit about getting rid of statements and facts that undercut their case for trying to reopen the marine monuments, both in the Pacific and the Atlantic, to commercial fishing. And there's, there's one amazing exchange where you, you see them realize that if they lifted uh, the ban on commercial fishing inside Rose Atoll National Monument in the Pacific, mm -hmm. It wouldn't make a difference because there's a broader ban on large boat fishing in an area larger than Rose Atoll. And it's like you can you can hear the sad trombones going off in their <laughs> heads in this email exchange when they realize what they wanted to do won't actually make a difference because of other protections. <laughs> I... <sighs> It's kind of amazing, uh, and they're kind of busted, it seems to me, uh, with these documents. Uh, I mentioned that uh, these reductions already to Bears Ears and Grand Staircase, that those are being challenged in court. Uh, what is the status of those uh, challenges, uh, Aaron, uh, currently? And have the monuments themselves already been restricted as far as which portion, portions of their uh, lands are actually physically protected under the original monument uh, designation, uh, or is everything on hold uh, during the court challenge? Uh, everything is not necessarily on hold yet. I, I suspect as this uh, claim for a copper mine inside Grand Staircase moves forward, you will quickly see that attached to the lawsuits. Uh, the lawsuits themselves are moving quite slowly. Right now, they're trying to figure out, will the, the lawsuit, uh, will the trial be held in Utah or D.C.? So we're still at the venue phase of those lawsuits. Mm. Once there's a venue, 
we're, then you're, you're moving into the, the summary judgment phase. And I was just talking to some of the attorneys about this uh, the mm-hmm. other day, and their position is uh, that these documents here that they released don't even come into play yet and probably shouldn't come into play at all because the issue at hand in summary judgment is did President Trump even have the authority under the Antiquities Act to shrink a national monument? And there's a very strong case, both in case law, the way the Antiquities Act is written, and then another federal law called FLIPMA, passed in 1976, that make it clear, no, that the Antiquities Act is a one-way act. The president can protect land using the Antiquities Act, but only Congress can undo a national monument designation. Mm-hmm. And so that's going to be the the crucial part before you even get into any of this around wasn't made it in good faith, anything like that. It's simply a matter of he does not have that the authority. And so that's going to be the first uh, legal issue that gets gets sorted out. Yeah, uh, good. Uh, I, I only worry about what protections are lost in the meantime as these uh, mm-hmm. long legal fights continue. Uh, Aaron, I got just a, another minute or so here very quickly. Uh, I am not sure... I'm not sure why, but as I mentioned at the top, uh, Zinke's uh, pretty obviously uh, corrupt. I mean, pretty obvious yeah. corruption in a bunch of areas. And yet it seems like he has yet to receive the kind of uh, national media scrutiny that the other, well, one of the other wildly corrupt Trump officials, now former EPA director Scott Pruitt, received. Um, but as you know, Zinke has been talking about shrinking public lands elsewhere. He's had a very different idea about public lands in his own home state of Montana, uh, near his uh, hometown of Whitefish, where it's believed uh, he plans to run for governor at some point. What can you tell me uh, about why he has not received sort of the same level of scrutiny that uh, that Pruitt had over at EPA as you see it? And do you see that changing now? It, I think it is changing right now. I said for, for months that Scott Pruitt was the best thing Ryan Zinke had going for him because Scott mm. Pruitt was so cartoonishly bad. And Ryan Zinke is right up there. And certainly in terms of investigations, he is up there. We're, we're at a dozen investigations and counting, and I'm pretty confident there are going to be more in the wings. This, uh, this land deal, this development deal with the, the chairman of Halliburton in Whitefish to apparently looks like build the secretary a brew pub, which he's always wanted to have. That one's going to have legs. Uh, and a, your, a brew pub, a, a brewery. Yeah, he, he, is, he is long. He's had a company called Double Tap Brewing LLC, and he's always wanted to, to own a, a brew pub. That's a, like a, it's, a, it's a Navy SEAL head shop pun there along with a beer pun two and one uh so the he had a meeting in his office with the developer of this uh of this setup in in montana and the chairman of halliburton who's one of the investors and they they were together for four hours where they met in his office for 90 minutes he gave them a behind the scenes tour of the lincoln memorial and then they went to a brew pub and ryan zinke insists in that whole time they never actually talked about getting him a brewery that is Literally in his emails, we see the email with the site plan for the brew pub directly next to a nonprofit park that the Zinkies have long tried and failed to develop there in Whitefish. So keep your eye on that one. That that investigation is going to go places. And just a just a coincidence that the chairman of uh, oil services at Halliburton is involved in this brew pub. Right. 
Exactly. To, yeah, he, he, okay. he, he they, they claim he was just there as an, you know, interested whitefish resident <laughs> sitting in the secretary's office. Never mind that every decision Secretary Zinke makes that leads to more oil and gas development on public lands leads to more business for Halliburton because they're the largest oil and gas services company in the world. Unbelievable. I know you wrote about that at uh, CWP's Westwise blog uh, today. I'll try to point folks over to that story uh, that I hope is a developing story. Aaron Weiss, uh, media director, podcaster for the Center for Western Priorities as well. Your podcast is called Go West Young Podcast, which I love. Great name. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'll point folks over to uh, that as well. Aaron, really appreciate you joining us uh, to fill us in on all of this and hope you'll stay in touch as uh, the Zinky Nightmare and others move forward. My pleasure. Happy to come back anytime. You can find Aaron's work also on the Twitters at A. Weiss. You can find uh, the Center for Western Priorities on the Twitters at WSTRN Priorities and, of course, at WesternPriorities.org. Thanks a bunch, Aaron. Talk to you next time, Brad. Sounds like he had uh, his, his child in the background yes, there. Yes, I think his little kids had just gotten back from uh, from daycare or something. You know, I wanted to add one yeah. thing just to pile on yeah. about the importance of public lands to rural economies that, that rely on that tourism. Mm. Um, you know, remember, consider it this way. Local tourism, people that come to visit, that is sustainable revenue that circulates within the local economy and can essentially last forever. Yeah, it never goes away unless you destroy those lands. Unless and you people destroy want to the stop thing, coming. yeah, that yeah. they want to come look at. And and so compare that, contrast that with the extraction industries of mining and logging and drilling. Um, those destroy the resource. They mine the resource to exhaustion. They leave. They send their profits out of state, mm. and then they disappear and that resource is just then gone. And then oftentimes the local folks are also left behind with a toxic site that they are then responsible for paying to clean up. Well said. Well put, Ms. Doyen. Thanks, Brad. And thanks to you for joining us for today's Best of the Bradcast and spending part of your day with us. You can find, follow, and share us worldwide on the Facebooks and the Twitters at The Brad Blog. And as ever, our thanks to those of you who stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us stay on your public airwaves. We'll be back soon. I'm Bradcast producer Desi Doyen. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>